Please open your Bibles now to Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. Luke 1, verses 57 through 80. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then shall this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father David to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. <clears throat> Almighty Father, as we come to this passage this morning, I remember how it was that when you called Moses to go and preach to Pharaoh, he complained and said that he was not eloquent enough, but that you promised to be with his mouth and you promised to send with him his brother who would be a spokesman for him. Father, there is no one who is eloquent enough to speak about these things and these great hymns in the Gospel of Luke, and they're, I'm certainly not eloquent enough to speak to the hearts of your people here this morning. So Lord, I pray that you will be with my mouth, and I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to us. 
I pray that in this great hymn you might speak to our hearts. You might speak to us about the sunrise of salvation that you have caused to dawn in the darkness of this world through Jesus our Savior. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, years ago, I was traveling with my family from our home, which was then in Pittsburgh, to my parents' place in Alabama. We would always get up. We would be on the road at about four in the morning in those days. And I remember at this particular time, we were driving along a lonely stretch of interstate in southwestern Ohio early in the morning. Everybody else was asleep. <clears throat> And I began noticing in the grain light of the approaching sunrise these intermittent patches of sunflowers. Uh, these sunflower patches were planted just off the interstate. And I often wondered over the years who might have planted those things. I don't know, was it the Ohio Department of Transportation? Was it some county at that point there, at that part of the interstate? I don't know, but, but I do remember and some of you may have seen this before, that, that as the sun rose and chased away the night, these sunflowers, which had been drooping their faces heavily in the darkness, began ever so slowly lifting their faces to greet the sunrise. It was a wonderful sight. And I think of that, and, and I think of how in these opening chapters of Luke's Gospel, the faces of God's people that have been drooping now in the darkness for hundreds of years are rising gradually to behold the sunrise of God's salvation in the birth of our Savior Jesus. As we said last Sunday, the night before Jesus' birth had been long and it had been dark. The voice of the prophet had been silent for 400 years, but Malachi had promised, hadn't he, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And now in Luke's gospel, you begin to see these first glimmers of that long-awaited sunrise beginning to shine. Gabriel announces to Zechariah earlier in this chapter the conception, the supernatural conception of a son to his elderly wife, Elizabeth. She was past childbearing years. She had been barren her whole life. You shall name his, call his name John, Gabriel instructed. And then fast forward some six months when Gabriel announces now to Mary a young virgin, that she has miraculously conceived a son. And this son would be called the Son of the Most High God, and you shall name him Jesus, Gabriel instructed. And then immediately following that announcement, we saw how Mary and Elizabeth meet at Elizabeth's home, and rather unexpectedly, John who was six months along in his mother's womb, leaps for joy. And at that point, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and she prophesies. And then Mary responds by singing her Magnificat. I mean, these were bright rays of the coming sunrise. 
And now, with the birth of John, there is further light as Zechariah, who we know has been speechless for nine months because he had not believed uh, Gabriel's annunciation of his son's supernatural conception. He insists at his son's circumcision that his name is to be John, just as Gabriel commanded him. And at that point, Zechariah's tongue is loosed and he sings the final hymn in Luke, before the birth, the glorious sunrise of Jesus. According to God's tender mercy, he is causing now the light of salvation and the birth of his son to drive away the darkness of sin and sadness. This is a glorious, joyful day that is dawning. Now, traditionally, this hymn has been called Benedictus, after the Latin word for blessed. Blessed wonderfully expresses how we, like Zechariah, bless the Lord with praises when God visits us and he causes the light of salvation to dawn in our hearts. Knowing Christ chases away the nighttime of sadness. And there are three qualities of that saving light that we see radiating in Zechariah's hymn that lift our hearts to praise God. And the first is this, the ray of hope. The ray of hope. Because the light of God's faithfulness dawned in Christ, we are people of unbounded hope. And don't we see in Zechariah's hymn a heart that is abounding in hope because God fulfills all the promises according to his faithfulness. I mean, at long last, God has visited and he has redeemed his people, Zechariah sings. In the manner of the Old Testament prophets, Zechariah speaks about these things as though they are already done. And it's because God always keeps his promises. And he goes on to proclaim that the means of our redemption is this horn of salvation he has raised up in the house of David. And then he adds that all this is done as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. I mean, isn't it clear that the souls of Old Testament believers fed much on the promises of God that they might have hope? I mean, they were obliged to hope in God's promises far more than you and I are. I mean, these people knew nothing of the great truths of Christ's life that we take for granted. Christ's life, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection. They looked forward to redemption. They looked forward to the horn of salvation as things only hoped for, but as yet not seen. I mean, the only warrant for their hope were the promises of God that he spoke. Oh, my friends, doesn't their faith put ours to shame. I mean, don't we find ourselves oftentimes sinking in the darkness of discouragement because we are not feasting at the banquet table of God's promises which give us hope? Child of God, hope in God's covenant of grace with you. 
to all of us who have Christ. This great horn of salvation God positively promises, I will be your God and you will be my people. You see, in the words of the prophet Micah, God delights, God delights to show his steadfast love to those who have this son. Brothers and sisters, we have hope for the future. We have hope for the future. Let us learn to hide God's promises in our hearts as Zechariah did. Let us not doubt that every word God has spoken about our future will be fulfilled. Our eternal safety is anchored in God's promise. The world, the flesh, the devil, these enemies that wage war against our souls shall never prevail. Because as Zechariah sings, God has promised to save his people from their enemies. Now yes, these enemies rage against our souls. They threaten to be our undoing. But our acquittal before God's awesome throne on that last day is secured by his promise. We will not be condemned. Rather, we will be presented spotless before the Father's throne. Our final glory is recorded. It is secured. It is secured by God's promised redemption. Suddenly and unexpectedly, our Savior is going to come again. He really is, just as he did the first time. And he will gather all his saints together, and he will give them a crown of righteousness. Let us be persuaded of these promises so that we may abound in hope. God's word is never broken. God is not a man that he should lie. And brothers and sisters, we have hope for the present. I mean, what are the many dangers, toils, and snares that you and I have to pass through on our way to glory on that final day? Well, my friend, believe this promise of God through the mouth of Paul that you may abound in hope. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things and so Charles Spurgeon, my favorite Baptist, puts it this way. He says, the man who has Christ has everything. There are all things in one in Jesus Christ, and if you once get him, you are rich to all the intents of eternal bliss. What? Have Jesus Christ and be discontented? Have Christ and murmur? Beloved, let me chide you gently and pray that you lay aside that evil habit. If you have Christ, then you have God the Father to be your protector and God the Spirit to be your comforter. You have present things working together for your good and future things to unravel your happier portion. You have angels to be your servants, both on earth and in heaven. You have all the wheels of providence revolving for your benefit. You have your daily trials sanctified to your benefit. Your gains and your losses alike are profitable to you. When the light of Christ dawns on us, 
the ray of hope shines in our hearts. The second thing we see is the ray of mercy. In this hymn, Zechariah extols God because of his tender mercy. Now think of this situation. All the hill country of Judah or Judea where Zechariah lived was abuzz now with a sense of awe. Luke says, fear came on all the neighbors. They were wondering, weren't they? What shall this son of Zechariah be? Clearly the hand of the Lord is with him. And well might the people have wondered. Elizabeth had supernaturally conceived. For a season Zechariah had been struck with muteness. There had also been the matter of their son's name. And at the child's circumcision when he was to be named and the people made hands signals to mute, and we presume at that point, deaf Zechariah, he wrote on a tablet, his name is John, meaning the Lord is gracious, the name given to him by God, and Zechariah's tongue was immediately loosed, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, blessed be God. It was then that as Zechariah was carried along with the Holy Spirit that he answered the burning question in everybody's hearts concerning the purpose for his son. His son would be known as the prophet of the Most High, for he would go before the Lord to prepare his way. This special son would be the great herald of salvation. He would proclaim the forgiveness of sins through God's Savior. Why? Because of his tender mercy. His tender mercy. Now, isn't that a comforting word from God? Isn't it wonderful that God passes over the transgressions of his spirit people because he delights to show tender mercy? It's just dumbfounding when you think about it. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? God declared through the prophet. The Lord delights to show mercy. The Lord is tender with mercy. And I say this because I want any soul within earshot of my voice this morning that may be burdened with sin to believe in God's forgiveness of sins and to believe in it because God is love and God is tender with mercy. I mean, God is so full of mercy that he loves not to condemn the guilty. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, God looks with this anxious care as to how he can turn away his wrath and restore sinners again to his favor. And so for that reason alone, he has visited us with redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, two great activities of God sung about in this hymn reveal the wonder and the blessing of his tender mercy. First, the visitation of God. The visitation of God. I love this word, visit. It appears twice in this hymn. Zechariah praises God because according to his tender mercy, he has stooped to give us a personal visit. Verse 78 says, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Now, in what ways has the Lord shown his tender mercy in visiting us? He has visited us in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus. This is such a blessing when you think about it. I mean, think about it. Kings may visit their subjects. Presidents may visit their, their citizens. But they do not Think of taking on themselves their citizens' poverty and their sickness and their sorrow. But you see, our Lord in His tender mercy does. 
He united his deity to our humanity in the womb of the virgin. He veiled his glory for a time with the robe of our weak humanity. Now think about it. The Lord has so visited us that he became a baby that could do nothing but lie and cry and wriggle about. He needed to be changed. He needed to learn to crawl and walk and talk like the rest of us. I mean, the Lord has so visited us as to become a carpenter's son and to know all about the sweat and the toil and the weariness and the hunger and the thirst. He has visited us in such a way that he made himself vulnerable to temptation. In every respect, he was tempted as we are yet without sin, the writer of Hebrews says. The Son of God really visited us in that he took our illnesses and he bore our infirmities as Isaiah foretold. Because the Lord has visited us not with vengeance as an angel with a flaming sword, But in this gentle person of Jesus, who was the friend of tax collectors and sinners, we see the tender mercy of our God. The visitation of God and second, the redemption of God. He has visited us and redeemed his people. Zechariah sings in verse 68, salvation from God means redemption. It means deliverance. The basic idea of redemption, as many of you know, is released from bondage through the payment of a price. And there are few truths that so show us God's tender mercy as his redemption of us through the gift of his son for our sins. I remember it was about a century ago. One of the greatest Christian thinkers and teachers of the day was B.B. Warfield. And B.B. Warfield gave the opening address to incoming students at the great Princeton Theological Seminary in those days. And in that address, Warfield told the students how precious the two words redeemer and redemption are. This great scholar said, quote, there is no one of the titles of Christ which is more precious to Christian hearts than Redeemer. While it is true that other titles are more frequently on our lips, such as Lord or Savior or Christ, Redeemer is more intimate. It's more precious. And so Warfield explained, quote, it gives expression not merely to our sense that we have received salvation from Jesus, but also to our appreciation of what it cost him to secure the salvation for us. It is the name specifically of the Christ of the cross. And so whenever we pronounce it, the cross is placarded before our eyes and our hearts are filled with loving remembrance, not only that Christ has given us salvation, but that he paid a mighty price for it. And then, to establish his point, Warfield did not go about quoting great works of theology about the cross. Instead, he just resorted to many of the great hymns of the church. And he quoted line after line from some 20 different hymns. He could could have quoted many more, but, but you see the hymns he quoted had lines like these. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me. And then after doing that, he did the same thing with hymns which used the word ransom, which has a meaning similar to redemption. 
Doesn't the redemption of God by His Son, our Redeemer, make us sing? I mean, the Son of God has visited us in His human flesh, not merely to look upon us, not merely to talk to us, not merely to set some sort of high example for us. Those would be great things in themselves, but no, He has visited us with redemption. He was born to be condemned for us. He was made a curse for us. Just as the scriptures say, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. On the cross, he took our debts upon himself that he might pay them. He, he gave himself unto death under God's wrath for us. He did not simply come in our nature and then keep himself reserved from all the consequences of our sin. He didn't just visit us in our nature and come into this world and then maintain a status of superiority over common people. Instead, he came to be a man among very ordinary people. And then he came to bear all the sufferings and all the misery that fallen people have brought on themselves by departing from the ways of God. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows because the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all, the prophet said. Our Lord has so visited us as to become our surety. He has visited us to be our ransom. Oh, my friends, see in these things the tender mercy of God the tender mercy of God. And because God is tender in mercy, obey His invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Oh, my friend, don't think for a moment, don't think for a moment that this tender Savior will give you the stiff arm that he will push you away in disgust because of your sins and all your problems that you have brought on yourself. No, he embraces every sinner who comes to him for forgiveness. According to his tender mercy, he has taken away the sin of those who receive him by his redeeming blood and death. The ray of hope, the ray of mercy, and then finally the ray of peace. We read in verse 79 that God has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Here again is more good news for us. I suppose, I suppose that of all the things people want today, peace is right there at the top of the list. And why is that? It's because, you see, ours is such a restless age. We are not at peace with God, and because we that, we find ourselves in these circumstances where we find no lasting peace and contentment. The great Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. And, and Zechariah sings of the ray of peace that burns in the hearts of those who have Christ. The sunrise of God's salvation. Peace with God. Peace with God. That's the starting place. That's always the starting place. Unless, unless God visits us with light, illumining our minds and hearts and the knowledge of Christ, we are at war with God. We are fighting with God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. And the reason is not hard to discover. It's because we desperately want to be God in our lives. 
We want to determine our own destinies. But you see, Jesus overcame this enmity by his death for us. He bridged the gap, making peace between God and those who are hostile to him. Jesus, as Isaiah foretold, is the Prince of Peace. So my friends, let us rest in his wounds and his suffering and death for us. Through them we have peace with God. And then the peace of God. The peace of God. My friends, living as Lord of your life is such an anxious, fretful business, isn't it? I mean, how soon we realize that we aren't the Lord of our circumstances. No one here today can give me a guarantee that they will be alive tomorrow. You're not the Lord of your destiny. And trying to be so is such an anxious business. I mean, wanting to be Lord of your life creates such problems in our lives. We find ourselves always trying to control other people. We struggle with outbursts of anger. We struggle with bouts of discouragement and depression. Perhaps we resort to substance abuse. My friend, if at once we embrace Jesus as our Redeemer and substitute for our sin, we not only have peace with God, but we have the peace of God. You see, in the hurricane of every difficulty and every trial, there is this eye of peace for the child of God. Why? Because we know the Almighty One who says, I will be your God and you will be my people. The Lord has our situation well in hand. He works all things together for our ultimate good. He works all things together for our good, even our sins and our failures. It can't be any other way. We know the Almighty One. And He promises us this. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Having Christ, the sunrise of God's salvation, makes the ray of peace burn brightly in our hearts. Praise be to God for His grace to us and our Savior. Let us pray. Almighty God, I pray that if our heads have been drooping wearily in the darkness of our difficulties, that you might brighten us that you might brighten our hearts, reminding us of this salvation that you have caused to dawn in the darkness of this world in our Savior Jesus. Almighty God, I pray for anyone here who is feeling burdened by the weight of their sin. I pray that they might heed the tender command of their Savior saying, Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Lord, deliver that person. Enable them to come to Jesus, the sunrise of salvation. I pray for any here today who are drooping 
in the discouragement of their difficulties, help us to remember that in having Christ, we not only have peace with you, but we have peace. We have the peace of God. Why is that? It's because we no longer belong to ourselves. We don't belong to our circumstances. We belong to you, Almighty God. And you have promised to work all things together for our good. Lord, lift our hearts with hope and peace, having Christ, and because of that, having you, the Almighty One, working all together for our good according to your tender mercy. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.